the people do the most amazing things. And the, you learn more on the bicycles about people and their habits. I think when you cycle, as well as energizing yourself, which you're doing, you know, you're using a bit of energy and that's always welcome for warming you up in cold weather or, or just, uh, I think it, it, the body enjoys being used and uh, other, like all uh, mechanized transport is too sedentary. It does, doesn't allow the same exercise. And at the same time, cycling isn't a strenuous exercise. It's just pleasant. It's just a pleasant amount. facts are that cyclists and motorised traffic don't mix and the ideal would be to separate cyclists from motorised traffic. Now th that uh, can be done, uh, there's obviously certain areas where it can't be done, but where it, where it can be done, it should be done, particularly with all these new uh, motor, uh, these bypasses and things that mm -hmm. they're building, or these new uh, satellite towns or suburbs, th they all should have incorporated into them cycle, cycle paths which are, are separate from motorised traffic. <laughs> Dublin Corporation's traffic count for 1983 revealed that after some years of slow growth, bicycle traffic in central Dublin was up on the previous year by 21%. 1984 figures show a slight drop, probably due to the introduction of the dart, but the underlying trend is up. Uh, there's been over a million bikes, in fact there's a million and 17,000 bikes imported into Ireland since 1977. Now, 83, uh, 162,000 bikes were imported and at, in the same period there was only 84,000 private cars imported so the importation of bikes is actually working two to one at the moment. So anybody who's not willing to plan for that influx and, and plan for that increase in, in bikes is really hiding their head in the sand. You can see them building up now and this year they're increased by at least 100%. The peak age, uh, I'm quoting now last year's figures, uh, for pedal cycle facilities and fatalities is between 13 and 14 years of age. So parents should be very interested in, in, in joining our campaign. To that make looks like cycle. a very high peak on the graph there, they're very high Extremely risk. high peak, yeah, that's the, that's the point. Now, you, you, 10 years ago the, the, the peak would have been near to the 20, the 18 to 20, but now it's gone down to 13 to 14. That's very serious. Most of those I would reckon would be um, young kids going to school. Mm. Uh, funny enough, uh, again, that the, the, the highest rate of fatalities are on the open road. Once you get outside the urban areas, that fast-moving traffic, once again, uh, cyclists and, and, and uh, motorised traffic don't mix. You're more likely to get yourself killed in the open road than you are in Dublin. That's not saying that you can't get yourself killed in Dublin as well, but your chances are slightly better. It's amazing that that more than knocked down, you know, it really is. The motorists, like, have to take credit for that because we give away to them, you know, because you can't afford to hit them. No, no, they, they should have uh, some facilities, you know, all right. But like, like the uh, new you know, bicycle, bicycle lanes, you know, where, 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 it's, where it's possible. The, the new one, the new road out by Fairview has it. It's a good idea. I'm six, I'm six half on the table with our bicycles. We have kids at home now, we cut them on the road on a bicycle, they break their neck. It's too dangerous. Oh, it's, it's much too dangerous. I've always been worried about the fact that uh, children are no longer able to cycle safely in the city. When I was a child, you went to school on a bicycle and that was it. 
and uh, you're no longer able to do that. It's not safe to leave children out on the roads. So I felt that if one could find some alternative way into and out of the city, rather than using the, the major roads, it would, uh, it would be useful. And so that's how it began, and I looked at a map and wondered if there was any possibility of using pathways that already existed. And uh, it seemed to me that the rivers were an ideal means of doing this. And I started, I think I started with the daughter, because I felt that everything really began at the hub, which was around Ring's End, at the mouth of the Liffey, at the mouth of the two canals there, at the mouth of the daughter there, so, uh, and you also had the railways which ended there, and the coastline. So I started there, went up along the daughter, which again I'd known in childhood, and it was a fascinating river to go along the banks again, and and indeed see how beautifully they've been restored in places and there's been very nice landscaping done there and there are very beautiful walks for people which you wouldn't want to disturb but I think you could utilize both banks of the daughter and so you could have a cycle pathway on one side and a pedestrian on the other um, and that really brings you the whole way out to, to, to Temple Logan you can cycle along it and so as it would be possible to bring all the people in that area around Temple Logan on the way in. They, they could uh, get into the city centre by the daughter. The Royal Canal was the greatest surprise of all because I had always thought of it as a rather derelict waterway. But in fact it's very beautiful. There's a tremendous path right from Blanchardstown right into Fairview with just a bit of work, a little bit of money maybe from the corporation a few traffic signals along the way, across the bridges that they have to come across, could be a uh, tremendous, not only uh, for getting in and out to work, but also for, for leisure on the weekends. The old towpaths still exist there when you get out closer to, to Blanchardstown. And so I was able to do that trip, I think, in less than half an hour without ever really seeing a motorist, mm -hmm. except when you surfaced to go across the intersections. Um, then likewise, you I explored the possibilities along the railway. Now that's changed a little bit with electrification. It is just about possible to walk the whole way from Dorky into uh, Western Row uh, along the pathways. Some of them are gone, and now with the electrification, I think they've been eroded further. Uh -huh. But still, I think one could uh, managed to make some sort of a cycle path that would run along the, the railway. One area that would be, of course, very exciting if it was possible to do it would be to restore the Harcourt Street line as a, a cycle and pedestrian path. Even if some of the bridges are down, like from the Renla end up to wherever, up to Dundrum, that even from Dundrum out to Bray, it's mostly through countryside now and it would make an ideal um, it would be fairly level because it mm. was a railway. Make an ideal kind of path for people to cycle out just to join on the weekends and just cycle off into the countryside. Uh, this should be possible to do, uh, apart from the fact that some of the properties have been sold off and so the line isn't, uh, isn't entire anymore. Uh, but it's a, it's a very beautiful walk. I walked it with some difficulty uh, because it's, it's difficult to get by various obstructions that have been there. 
but it's a beautiful walk, and, and it was, of course, a, a charming line in its its day, the slow and easy, as they used to call it. But um, it might be possible to put back the bridges for bicycles and pedestrians, to put lightweight bridges back. On the other hand, there is talk again about making a railway out of it, so that would change that. Again, though, uh, with a little bit of vision, it might be possible to put a cycle lane along the track. In Britain, they've done a lot of that with old railway lines, closed down railway lines. They've, the um, with youth employment schemes, they've helped to resurface the, you know, the the actual space, and they now have I don't know how many miles, hundreds of miles of, of cycle paths in in, in country areas. But with all the closed lines, I mean, with CIE having closed down so many branch lines and whatever over the last number of years, like the, the say, I don't know, Tralita Dingle or Galway to Clifton or the West Clare Railway, that there must be some kind of scope, you know, and would be also a very good tourist attraction, I think, because a lot of people who come from the continent to Ireland uh, come on their bikes or hire out bikes while they're in the country, you know. So if there was some money available and with a little bit of imagination, it could be a great country for cyclists. Rambles in Erin is William Bulfin's account of his travels around Ireland on a Wexford-made Pierce bicycle back in 1908. It was dark when we left Lugalaw, and we felt our way cautiously on foot down to Lugalaw Gate. And when at last we had made our way down to the main track, my comrade made scientific preparations to light his acetylene lamp. I despised the use of a headlight and suggested that we should not trouble ourselves about such a detail. He said nothing but went on quietly fixing his lamp and when he had it ready, he started an illumination that lit up the night like a bonfire. Down and down and down we rode on our homeward journey, until we met the hedgerows again, and the trees loomed through the darkness. We passed the sleeve coolin between the mountainside and the precipice, and rode down into Bray, then through Little Bray, and on toward Shankill. There were newly made patches of quarried stones on the road, and in riding over one of them, I punctured a tyre. We found puncture by the lamplight, and as I patched it, the following remark fell upon me out of the darkness. You see, after all, a lamplight has its uses now and then. I received the gentle proposition in a state of meekness, and humbly rode behind the man who had made it until we passed Dunleary. At times, in the black darkness under the trees, I thought how much like a huge fly he looked, silhouetted against the blaze of lamplight, but I kept the remark to myself. There were loose stones still on the road, and I feared another puncture. reasons why people don't use bikes. First of all is the safety factor that we keep on saying over and over again ad nauseum that there is a suppressed demand for cycling facilities in Dublin. Uh, if they had safe cycling, if people considered it safe to cycle, they would cycle. The second point is then that when you get to where you're going, if you had safe parking. Now, I don't know what the, 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 the theft of bicycles are like in other towns, but in, in Dublin it's absolutely ridiculous. I mean, it's, it's reached epidemic proportions. And I've seen it in, in happening in Thomas Street. It's just somebody throwing a, a bike onto the back of a lorry. You know, it doesn't matter. The, the bike is locked, but they can take it back to some place and cut it then, you know. And they, they, they stopped a, a lorry coming out of Trinity one day with about 45 bikes on the back. 
<laughs> well, we asked a question in the survey during the summer, have you had your bike stolen? And 52% had more than one bike stolen. And half of those reported to the police. And only something like um, 4% of the bikes were recovered out of that. I mean, they steal across of an ass's back at this time, you know. And I've seen them myself on the, on, down at the green there, and I've seen them with hacksaws cutting the, cutting the, the locks on bikes. I've shouted at them several times. Quite blatantly. There in broad daylight in the summertime at the corner of Stephen's Green there. Possibly supervised parking for bikes would be the answer. Uh, at places like railway stations, I mean, we, we did approach CIE years ago and we got no response from them. There's only one bicycle shop, uh, supervised bicycle parking in, in town, that's the Square Deal in Temple Lane. But we're doing a good business, I'm glad to say. We realise that it's unique, like to get a similar centre, say, in Bonn or any other European capital, uh, we've heard of one group had to pay out 250,000 guilders between five separate groups just to get hold of a building of comparable standard to this. Although, as we say, the building wasn't, it wasn't all rosy when we came in. It's been a lot of hard work on the members' parts, completely putting in new floors, ceilings, walls, etc. But at this stage we're getting some assistance because we've managed to pay rent. CIE seem quite pleased with us as tenants and they're starting to give us assistance on the electrics and the plumbing. But um, generally everything seems to be going nicely. Everybody's happy and, and the idea seems to be well received. There, there, there was a bicycle park in Dublin, I'm told, 20, 30 years ago. Well, there was a good few bicycle parks all over Dublin. But they seem to have died out. Well, in fact, we weren't too sure ourselves as to how many lockups there had been. I remember my mother, who was a dressmaker and started working at 15, 14. She used to cycle into this neighbourhood, which was like the clothing trade sweatshop areas of, of Dublin back, back before the war. And uh, so um, she remembers places around here and she began to talk about that. But as soon as we opened up, within a fortnight of opening up, we had at least a half a dozen people coming in here telling us that there had been places before. And we've been covered on some radio show and we mentioned that we were the first one. And people were phoning in saying, well, my husband ran one and such and such like 30 years ago and stuff like that. You know, so we gathered a lot of information since we got here. You know. So we seem to belong to quite an old uh, healthy tradition that seems, you know, we, we seem to be the revival of it. And, you know, we kind of feel a bit honoured in that sense as well, you know, because it turns out there's a tradition here. Mm -hmm. Yes, Dunlop was a, a Scotsman and uh, he was living in, in Belfast and uh, apparently the cobbles on the, the streets was affecting his son and uh, he decided he was um, a veterinary surgeon and he used to work with uh, rubber, like sheet rubber and that, you know, for various things and he made uh, the first tyre for his son's bike, Johnny was the son and actually all he done was made a, a tube and he nailed it onto a wooden disc and how he tested the the tire to see would it be um, faster or better was he just rolled it down the yard on the cobblestones as against the solid tire uh, tricycle wheel and of course the the airfield wheel went much further so he put the front wheel on the tricycle and then he put the put them on the rear wheel and um, 
there was a man named Hume racing in in, uh, in Belfast at the Queen's College Sports, and he was the first man to uh, to ride an airfield tyre in a race, and of course he won all the races. So there was a man named Ducrow at the races, and uh, his sons, there was five Ducrow altogether, the sons and the father, and they all done a bit of cycling, and they uh, were very interested in the tyre, and apparently they bought the patent from Dunlop and set up the company. And uh, it was known as the Bood Cycle Agencies or something here. A house at 67 Upper Stephen Street in Dublin bears a plaque which says, The first pneumatic tyre factory in the world was started here in 1889 to make tyres under John Boyd Dunlop's patent of 7th December 1888. Three years later, Dunlop, who was a director of the pneumatic tyre company, left Belfast and came to live at 46 Aylesbury Road in Donnybrook to help promote the business. Even after he had sold out his interest in the company and the patent, Dunlop lived on in Dublin and became a familiar figure in the city. In his 80s, we are told, he was still a handsome, erect man with luxurious white hair matched by a flowing white beard. He died in 1921 and he's buried in Dean's Grange Cemetery. Pete Matthews is very much alive. In their home in Santry, he and his family tend and maintain a collection of cycling antiquities, oddities and trick cycles, many of which they've built themselves. This um double bed bike was made specially for the St. Patrick's Day Parade one time. It's basically two bikes strapped together and uh, the two bed ends go on and when you sit on the back wheel it looks as if you're uh, sitting up in bed but you're pedalling underneath the claws and steered by a a tiller bar onto the front. It was made out in the backyard just as uh, a prototype and it worked so successfully, I never altered it since. <laughs> but when we had it uh, made, we had a problem getting it out. We had to take it over the garage roof and down the front. <laughs> Between trick bikes and old-fashioned bikes, it must have about 100 in all. The last count had about 70, so I'm sure it had more than that now. They're not all in here, presumably. Well, they're in the next door in another garage. There's more in yeah. there? Mother of God, there certainly is more in here. You have more pieces of beds in here. How many yeah. beds have you got all together? <laughs> How many brass beds well, have you got? There's two, two uh, bed ends, bedsteads, and then the full bed. But those two, um, they're just bed ends with wheels on it. One has uh, steered by uh, a, a steering wheel from a car. Oh, I and, see it. Yeah. Sitting up on top, yeah. That's right, yeah. Well, that's my favourite one, the, the, the big bed end. The big black yeah, one. I can find I can do more tricks on that than any other way. <laughs> you have a penny farthing here, or have you more? Yeah, there's about ten penny farthings altogether, uh, different varieties. Another variation of a penny farthing is the first safety bike. It's the first bike that the word safety was used in, and it was made by Singer about 1888. And uh, he cranked the front fork. The forks, were, the penny farthings were very dangerous because if you hit even a two-inch block, you're liable to go over the handlebars, and um, you couldn't get up from it because the handlebars would cross your legs. So when you slapped off the ground, the backbone came over and hit you on the back of the head. <laughs> it was known as an imperial crowner. <laughs> <laughs> That's a Michoud velocipede. That's older than the penny farthing on the inside. That's um, wooden wheels on that. And that's just shortly, yeah, that's about 1868. Even the spokes are wooden. Yes, it's, um, it's iron shod. It's not rubber. 
It's like a thin cartwheel. Yes, it's like a donkey cart. But the original bike, about 1818, had uh, equal size wheels, and you pushed along with your feet. Uh, that was known as the hobby horse. You struck the road with your feet, and they claimed you could do about 10 mile an hour on the flat. Well, there was a man named uh, Michoud in Paris. He was a perambulator <laughs> manufacturer, and uh, his mechanic named Lalamond, he decided one time to put uh, cranks on the front wheel of the, the hobby horse and drive it. He was um, more or less, he was thinking of the, the grinding wheel, you know, where you turn the handle or like a mangle. And he put the, the cranks on the front wheel and uh, that's actually how the history of bikes start from, from that instance. He found you could drive the front wheel with your feet and uh, then they increased the size of the wheel. You see, when they had equal size wheel, your feet were flying around, so they increased the wheel to get a higher gear. And that eventually evolved into the penny farthing because when you had such a high wheel made of wood, it was very unwieldy and then very heavy as well. So when they made the wire wheel, Starley actually made it in uh, 1871. It was known as the Ariel. Uh, or a ribbon wheel. He made uh, ribbons of brass. He made the spokes from ribbons of brass. The, actually, the, um, the bicycle was responsible for freeing for a lot of the, what would you call it, women's liberation. Because um, they started to wear uh, what was known as rational dress. <laughs> And the, the the bikes, you see, uh, brought women out into the fresh air. They didn't, and uh, they didn't have to wear all this tight bodices and all. They had to have they had to have freedom, you see, to ride a bike. So it done away with all a lot of the corsets and tight clothing. So um, and very heavy tweeds and that. In her book *Lark Rise to Candleford*, Flora Thompson recalls the early stirrings of cyclosexual politics in the rural England of the 1890s. For some obscure reason, the male sex tried hard to keep the privilege of bicycle riding to themselves. If a man saw or heard of a woman riding, he was horrified. Unwomanly. Most unwomanly. God knows what the world's coming to. Their protestations were unavailing. One woman after another appeared riding a glittering new bicycle. In long skirts, it is true, but with most of their petticoats left in the bedroom behind them. Even those women who as yet did not cycle gained something in freedom of movement, for the two or three bulky petticoats formerly worn were replaced by neat serge knickers. Heavy and cumbersome knickers compared with those of today, with many buttons and stiff buttonholes and cambric linings to be sewn in on Saturday nights, but a great improvement on the petticoats. The men's shocked criticism petered out before the fait accompli, and they contented themselves with such mild thrusts as... Mother's out upon her bike, enjoying of the fun. Sister and her beau have gone to take a little run. The housemaid and the cook are both riding on the wheels, and Daddy's in the kitchen, a cooking of the meals. And very good for Daddy it was. He had had all the fun hitherto. Now it was his wife's and his daughter's turn. The knell of the selfish, much-waited-upon, old-fashioned father of the family was sounded by the bicycle bell. Daisy, Daisy, give me your answer, do. 
Two months of this summer uh, I spent uh, wandering around generally in um, Southeast Asia, including, in, including Bali and Java, which are two of the islands of Indonesia. Um, a lot of things struck me about Indonesia and Southeast Asia generally. I think the most striking thing about the whole culture I encountered there was the inaggressivity of the people. Uh, that was a real treat. Um, but one of the other outward things that struck me with great force was the use of the bicycle in Southeast Asia. Um, I, think, I think in Europe the bicycle has never really had its day. I think it was overtaken at an early stage by the motor car. But perhaps for historical reasons that mechanization just wasn't available to people or whatever, in Southeast Asia, the bicycle has developed. The bicycle is used not just as a way of one person getting around now and then, but as in every day in a general way. Um, it has been adapted to purposes that we wouldn't even think about here. For example, um, bicycle taxis are a very common uh, feature um, in that part of the world. Um, lots of different kinds of bicycle taxis, somewhere the, the cab for the passengers is in the front and there you see uh, a woman, um, a man and his wife perhaps and all their packages coming from the market, uh, driven by um, or propelled by a, a cyclist who sits, who sits behind them on his uh, mount. Or, um, there are also bicycle taxis where the little cab for the passengers is at the side. There are lots of different elaborations of the same idea. I, for instance, I cycle in Dublin and uh, I carry a child in the front and a child behind and uh, people uh, point me out in the street and I'm considered as a mildest and eccentric. But in Southeast Asia, I was just <laughs> run of the mill because um, everybody was doing it. I didn't, in fact, no, I, um, I didn't bring the bicycle. I figured that I could hire a bicycle in different places, and that turned out to be true. But it was very common there to see a man and a woman um, and two children on the same. Generally speaking, in fact, the, the family was on um, motorbikes. The motor, they've, um, they've made that um, pact with mechanization. Uh, and there's, there's actually a, a Honda going around in that part of the world called the family Honda, where you have uh, a man, perhaps a man driving, a woman as his, pa his passenger, a child in between the man and the woman, and a child on the front sitting on the fuel tank. Now this is obviously an evolution from, the use of, from their use of the bicycle, because on, you, you see the very same setup on bicycles, but it's just the, the Honda has a bit a superseded the bike in that for family transport. But uh, as apart from bicycle taxis, uh, you could also see uh, bicycle food stalls where a man would have his, um, all his wares laid out on a sort of, um, what would you call it, a kind of um, a platform, uh, a purpose-built platform on the front of his bike, and then he'd just stop here and there and sell his wares and then get up and go again. It's just, it's as if they sat down, or they didn't sit down maybe, but they they thought about the bicycle, about the uses of the bicycle, and they were, they had to think about it because they didn't have alternatives, perhaps. 
but it was a treat for a cyclist. In Thailand, for instance, they were full of, they were, there was a lot of chrome on the bicycles and a lot of, um, they were very decorated looking. As, of course, are other things in Thailand too, like trucks, ordinary uh, motor trucks are very decorated there with Buddhas uh, painted on them and all sorts of um, little um, uh, f fancy wrought iron work on the front of them. So they, they, they just seem to love um, this type of refined decoration. Um, and that was reflected in the, in the way they presented their samlors or bicycle taxis as well. So they varied enormously from place to place. But uh, it was a trip. It was a real trip for a cyclist. It was just like a, a pat on the back after all these years. <laughs> like a duck discovering water. Recently, a baker's bicycle replaced the chauffeur-driven Mercedes as official transport for West Germany's newly elected environmentalist Greens party. The Greens paraded their black-painted former baker's bicycle, complete with front bread pannier, uh, that's now used to carry official documents with a sign reading German Parliament MP. A party spokesman said, From now on, the bicycle is the official transport of all Greens members of Parliament, for ecological reasons, and as an example to all other MPs. We consider free government limousines to be an unnecessary luxury. Well, that's a good idea, and a lot of our politicians should be made to do the same damn thing, especially these monkeys coming in from the EEC on the sword road there with ten policemen in front on motorcycles. And some Mickey Mouse from Tingmalang Malu or somewhere comes into Dublin, and he's escorted in the sword road as if, like, the water's dividing for St. Peter or whoever it was in the Bible. They should be made right a messenger bike. 1950 or 51, there was all-out war waged on bicycle thieves and a special squad set up uh, consisting of two men in each district working in plain clothes and they used to meet and have a conference in the castle every Saturday morning. A circular came out every week with uh, the numbers of stolen bicycles. And each member had a book. Similar to that? Similar to that, indexed to six numbers. And um, every weekend, they entered all the new bicycles in and struck off the ones that were discovered. Uh, if you boil it down to percentages, the recovery rate could be uh, half within a week because people didn't basically steal the bicycle, they just took it to get home. To get home. <laughs> and there was a special charge for that, uh, an emergency power order. And the bicycle was uh, so important during the emergency that 
these emergency power orders were made to cover not only the theft, but just unauthorised taking of the bike to go home on. And it carried a fine of £500 and six months imprisonment. And it was the same for a bag of flour, if you stole a bag of flour. Now, what we did was we set up uh, roadblocks. We'd go to different places and we'd have a guard in uniform out of Kilmainham, we'd say. And we do a whole up on Inchicore Road of people. Uh, we just asked them to get off their bicycles, look at the number. And scores of bicycles were recovered in that way. Sort of a spot check? Yeah. Spot checks. We'd visit, uh, we, we worked on our own, like as well as uh, these arranged uh, spot checks. And um, if I was cycling back to Kilmainham, we'd say after the as happened several occasions after this meeting in the castle. Um, if I saw a dozen bicycles outside a public house, I'd just get off, have a look at each one. And if there's one of them on the book, well, the book was always carried with you. And if one of the numbers was on the book, that meant that you had to stand there until closing time. It could be four hours until somebody came, put a hand on the bicycle. In Flann O'Brien's book, The Third Policeman, Sergeant Pluck elaborates on the atomic theory, which has the unpleasant effect of transforming people into bicycles, and vice versa, by virtue of the transference of molecules from bottom to saddle, and vice versa. The behaviour of a bicycle that has high content of humanity is very cunning and entirely remarkable. You never see them moving by themselves, but you meet them in the least accountable places, unexpectedly. Did you never see a bicycle leaning against the dresser of a warm kitchen when it's pouring outside? I did. And not very far away from the fire? Yes. Near enough to the family to hear the conversation? Yes. Not a thousand miles from where they keep the eatables? I did notice that. You don't mean to say that these bicycles... Eat food. They were never seen doing it. Nobody ever caught them with a mouthful of steak. All I know is that the food disappears. What? Well, it's not the first time I've noticed crumbs at the front wheels of some of these gentlemen. How would you know a man has a lot of bicycle in his veins? Well, if his number is over 50, you can tell it unmistakable from his walk. He will walk smartly always and never sit down and he'll lean against the wall with his elbow out and stay like that all night in his kitchen instead of going to bed. If he walks too slowly or stops in the middle of the road, he'll fall down in the hip and have to be lifted and set in motion again by some extraneous party. And this is the unfortunate state that the postman has cycled himself into and I don't think he'll ever cycle himself out of it. On one occasion I was with, two of us went up to this place on the Keys, a little factory, manufactured raincoats. Just put 11 o'clock in the morning and said, we'll have a look at these bikes here. So there was one on the book. And this girl came out to take the bicycle. Very nice girl, she lived down East Wall, you see. And we said to her, 
we asked her, like, uh, where did she get this bicycle? Well, she said, I, I, was, I was at a dance in the four provinces. And when I came out, my bicycle was gone, and this one was there. So we took the bicycle, and we discovered the owner, you see. And the, the girl who had reported it originally, you see, we found her, and she had a bicycle. And that was also on the book. <laughs> we said, we said, where did you get this? Well, I said, I was at a dance in the four provinces. <laughs> and when I came out, this was there, and my own was gone. And that was belonged to a third girl. And what had happened was that the three of them came out and took the wrong bicycle. <laughs> so all, all we'd got for our day's work was we cleared three crimes off the book, so three bicycle larcenies, and each bicycle was restored to the rightful owner. So you can see what can happen with one bicycle. It can lead you around the world and back again. Isn't that funny? <laughs>